Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. So welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. This is the first in a series of podcasts which we've titled the Cause Health series. And over the next few weeks, I'll be talking with the authors of the individual chapters of the Cause Health book, Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient. And the book can be downloaded for free at the Springer website or you can order a hard copy via Springer too. And if you head over to wordsmatter-education.com, there's a dedicated Course Health series webpage where there'll be links to each of the episodes, show notes, and also links to where you can download some of the resources talked about in each episode, and importantly, where you can access the Course Health book. So on this episode, we begin our journey through the Course Health book This is a truly wonderful resource, which at times can be a real challenge to get your head around some of the difficult philosophical and theoretical concepts. But the intention of these series of podcasts is to not only whet the appetite for you to download the book, but also provide context and guidance to support your journey through these chapters so that not only can you begin to get some purchase on the novel ideas throughout the book, but also if you're a clinician to facilitate the incorporation of some of the ideas in the book, and if you're a researcher to perhaps begin to take a slightly different stance, or at least reflect on your own stance in relation to the research work that you do. And I'm not going to pretend that some of the information in the book isn't challenging as a non-philosopher. At times, I wish I sat in some of these conversations with a philosophical thesaurus, but Rani, Eleanor and Samantha and all the other clinical contributors to the book did an absolutely fantastic job in making this information relatable, accessible and engageable whilst highlighting their utmost importance for person-centred healthcare. And the Course Health book was dedicated to the late Professor Stephen Tyreman, Stephen was a healthcare philosopher, an osteopath, and a member of the Course Health Collaboration, and a colleague of mine at the University College of Osteopathy in London. And not only will you hear Stephen's name mentioned throughout the series, but you'll also hear his ideas and the profound influence he had on many others thinking and theorising about these topics. Stephen's clear and critical thinking had an instrumental influence on my thinking and the thinking of many other students, clinicians, researchers and academics and I'm proud to dedicate this series in memory of Stephen Tyman. So in this first episode Rani, Samantha and Eleanor really try and set the scene for the book and we touch on the current evidence-based practice paradigm, the assumptions built into that paradigm around causation and the alternative view offered by the Cause Health project. We talk about how revising our assumptions about the nature of causation will lead to pluralism in the research methods and forms of evidence that we utilise in clinical practice. So I bring you Dr. Rani Lil-Anyam, Dr. Samantha Copeland, 
and Dr. Eleanor Rocker. Rani, Samantha and Eleanor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Perhaps you can introduce each of you, who you are and your current academic background. So I am Rani Lelanium and I'm a philosopher at Norwegian University of Life Sciences. Hi, I'm Samantha Copeland. I'm at the University of Technology in Delft in the Netherlands, and I work on the ethics and philosophy of technologies and uh, epistemology of medicine. Hi, I am Elena Rocca. I am a researcher uh, also at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, and I have a background in the natural sciences, especially um, drug research and pharmacy. And uh, I am passionate uh, for uh, philosophy of science. Brilliant. So this is the first of a series of podcasts really embarking on our journey through all 15 chapters of your new book, Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient. And so firstly, to congratulate the three of you on a truly wonderful resource. Um, So personally for me, it's both informing but yet challenging what I currently understood to pretty much be anything about anything to do with healthcare, but particularly you know, person-centred care, evidence-based practice, causation, you know, the, the, the value of clinical trials. I mean, pretty much everything which is worth knowing about or thinking about in relation to caring for people, it really both yeah, challenged my, my current understanding of, of how, I, how I saw clinical practice and research. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Nice to hear that. So I think a good starting point, and we're going to probably, whilst we're going to focus on on chapter one, which really sets the scene for the book and makes a a case for the value of philosophy for clinical practice, we're going to likely meander through a whole series of topics and probably digressions left and right. But I think initially, if you could, maybe in one sentence, any one of you, or you, you can overgo. What the Cause Health Project is about is the first challenge. And the second challenge is why should practitioners and readers kind of take notice of it? Why should they care about it? So I can say something about what is the Cause Health Project. So Cause Health started as a, as a philosophy uh, research project where we wanted to look at how one in practice can deal with the... Um, causality and causal evidence in uh, uh, in cases of complexity and large individual variations, because that's a challenge <laughs> for scientific methodology, which tends to think about causes one by one and seen in isolation from their uh, normal context. And so as a clinician, what's the value in that? So why not just continue as we are seeing patients as not medically unique and just... Um focusing on the similarities between people rather than the differences? What's the value in, in taking that position for clinicians? Well, I think that, you know, every every clinician knows the answer to that. I mean, we don't need to say that. Is that it, it is simply working. Uh, the clinical encounter and the therapy and the clinical choices are working better when you, uh, you must see the patient as a person in front of you in the unique case. The point is that how to find out, how to think about causes and effects in the unique case. This is a, a challenge. It is not only a practical challenge, we all know, it is also a conceptual challenge. So we're not used to that. 
it's not the first thing one does when thinking about cause and effect. The, the first thing is uh, thinking about you know what has happened in other cases. So what has happened in similar cases to that? Every expert does that and every researcher does that. It is, of course, a value in this, but there is also a big problem uh, when you want to uh, acknowledge the, um, the uniqueness of the case. Yeah. And, and is it the case that, as you said, that clinicians, any clinician worth being a clinician will consider the individuality of the, the person or the patient, but yet the evidence they have to hand is largely not taking that position, that it is large population-based studies in which the clinician has to somehow muddle through and apply apply these large statistics to the individual. Is that the current issue? That's what we've gotten from clinicians, right? So one thing about the project is once we started working and, and with and working through the theory and the implications for methodology, and it was still fairly abstract, but more and more clinicians found it really useful to have a conceptual way to explain the problem they were seeing in their own practice. Mm. And so they really latched on to the way of uh, the philosophical kind of way of explaining why it's so difficult to work with the individual given the evidence that they're provided with and the kinds of resources that they have and the kind of space that they've been trying to navigate when the especially kind of public health perspective comes in and says you have only this many minutes and you have to do this the same and you have to identify similarities immediately and work from there when your methods that you're being given in practice push you towards that but it feels wrong it can mm. be hard to explain what's wrong with it. And I think that what Cause Health has offered them is a way of explaining it. And then the enthusiasm has just been, you know, this seems to really be filling a gap in, 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 physician, in clinicians' understanding of their own practice and the kinds of difficulties they're facing. And then I know when I spoke to Rani in, in one of the previous episodes, you, she pretty much echoed what you said, Samantha, that clinicians, and I'm, this isn't, isn't going to come out the right way, but they came to you as philosophers to try and make sense of some of the challenges they were having in in their clinical practice in terms of applying evidence and the things the sorts of things that you mentioned. But I'm also wondering what you gained from them. I'm 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 guessing that that it gave you some kind of means by which to apply some of these philosophical arguments and to to see them kind of play out in in kind of real life. I'm doing the air quotes. Um, but in your yeah, real world practice? Well, we learn so much whenever we talk to clinicians because uh, we start from some fairly general ideas. So for instance, we started from the idea of medically unexplained symptoms because we have heard <laughs> that they were a class of conditions that were really complex. That means they were multifactorial. There were all this heterogeneity, you know, so there were large individual variations and it was even cases of medical uniqueness. And, uh, and within the standard evidence-based framework, you look for same cause, the same effect over, well, relatively similar populations. So how do you translate from that to these medically unexplained conditions? And what, what we thought was that here you have a problem because um, the way that we think conceptually about causation actually makes these uh, condition, conditions unexplained because you cannot find a cause under these conditions, but you could maybe find a cause if you looked at them individually. So, and with this as a starting point, it turned out that 
well, actually, this this challenge of complexity mm. and individual variations, it's it's everywhere. It's also in the kind of conditions where we know perfectly well what are the physical mechanisms. So uh, the feedback that we got very quickly was that, well, this this actually applies to uh, heart conditions and uh, cancer, whatever. But we got a whole bunch of clinicians interested because uh, of one of the medically unexplained conditions, which is um, uh, low back pain. So that's how we got a lot of uh, physiotherapists and, of course, um, inspired and led by uh, Roger Carey and, and Matthew Law. I remember reading a blog by an osteopath, actually, that, that I think went to the Guideline Challenge Conference and the title of the blog was something like Our Physiotherapists, the New Philosophers or something like that, because there's this real kind of uptake uh, and, and not just physiotherapy, but myself and, and colleagues, a real thirst, I think, for some of these explanatory frameworks and the, the depth of kind of, I guess, questioning that you, that you guys bring to, to these problems. Which isn't which isn't traditionally part of kind of undergraduate healthcare practice, apart from in Scandinavia where they all do kind of preliminary philosophy courses as part of their training. Well, the other really cool thing about having the clinicians involved, like Matthew um, Lowent, actually employing the vector model in his practice. I mean, as philosophers, you know that's that's the dream, right? As practical philosophers, you're like, oh, somebody actually did what we what we thought might work, and they tried it out, and oh my gosh, you know, because we're not we're not experimenters, we're not empirical researchers, we're theorists, and so having that actual network and connection with other people who are doing that practice and having them take up the ideas and try them out for us and then give feedback, right? Then come back to us with more ideas and more ways to understand um, our own ideas <laughs> as they might unfold in practice, right? And this is, you know, we might have had some theoretical ideas about what makes, uh, you know, good reasonable science, you know, but that doesn't always translate into practice. You can't always employ the best theory. Sometimes you're faced with, you know, just just different considerations, right? Limitations that come up. So it's uh, it's nice to get that back and forth with the clinicians, where we've been able to not only test out our theories, but also get mm. feedback on them as good or bad theories for practice. And and I think it's really come a long way in developing since the beginning of the project. And so I think Ronnie alluded to the ontological perspective that you took in relation to a causality. And I, I think we're going to be throwing, we probably need a glossary of terms prior to the next 15 episodes, but, but perhaps, and we can define it as we go along, but I think initially it might be useful just to lay out the meaning of, of some of the terms that will be used, epistemology, ontology, um, even the phrase practice is used a lot we could talk about what is practice, but I think initially just, just some of those key terms and concepts, which you lay out really nicely in the book, actually. And even for someone that was kind of familiar with some of those ideas, it was really, it was a really, I wouldn't say a new way, but just a, a an easy way or an accessible way to, to get a handle on some of these kind of, as a, as a clinician, they're difficult concepts to, to grapple with. So, uh, yeah, what uh, one thing that we are really keen to argue in the book is that there are, at least three dimensions that are tightly connected because um, a lot of people say that they want to see a change in how uh, healthcare is practiced and medicine is practiced. Um, but the problem is that if you want to just change it now, 
it seems to go against everything we know about methodology and the way that we think conceptually. So what we say is that if you want to change practice, uh, what you actually do in the clinic, you have to look at what kind of norms are underlying uh, that practice. Like, why should you give the treatment that works for most to everyone <laughs> in that category? So, so that comes down to to the normative aspect. So, how do you do? How do you apply uh, scientific knowledge? But that again depends on the methodology, which is which is linked to epistemology. And epistemology is about how can we know. How can we know about, for instance, causation? How do we get proper causal knowledge? But of course, that question again depends on what we think causation is. So what is causation actually? And that's an ontological question because then you come to like, what's the world like? What are these phenomena really? And some people might say it's conceptual, but we think it's even deeper than that because it goes to the very way that we have learned to think culturally as well. So for instance, the the, the dualism, the two division by the uh, kite between the mind and the body, that is a cultural understanding that we have of people, which is reflected in practice and in the way that all of healthcare is structured. If you have a pain that is physical, you go see a doctor, but if it turns out they cannot find something physiologically wrong with you, then maybe you have to see a shrink. You know, so it's just uh, it's two dimensions of of humans. So that kind of thinking is not something we normally go around reflecting over, but it's there in everything we learn. And then when people see, well, actually, when it comes to pain, this doesn't work because a lot of people have pain and we cannot find something physiological. Maybe we need to change that two division. Maybe that dualism is wrong. But what are the alternatives? Because then it seems like, oh, you're a holist. <laughs> and holistic medicine, I mean, that doesn't sound very good. So it sounds very anti-scientific or unscientific. And that's why we want to say, well, actually, if you change the philosophical framework, the best science would be very different. So that's what we try to do in the book. We say, change the way we think about causality, probability, complexity, and you will need very different methods to approach it. And that would lead to different practice. So for instance, instead of just applying statistical averages to individuals who are different. We start from the assumption that everyone is different and they need an adapted, tailored mm. uh, approach. And, and so what makes causation rise above the other kind of philosophical problems? That what, why is causation important? And that's, this is probably going too big or too deep, but... Yeah, what is it about causation? I and mean, that's one that, that's, I'm guessing, that's an aspect of philosophy or healthcare philosophy or, or, or philosophy medicine. Why is it important? Uh, why does it supersede other philosophical problems in relation to healthcare? Well, in the context that we're talking about, so in the clinical context, I would say causation is the problem or issue number one, because what are we doing if not uh, finding uh, causes? I mean, every time, first thing you have to do is to make a diagnosis or, you know, find what is the problem with your with the patient. And that's all about finding causes and trying to target them. So causes and effect, or even establishing predicting causes. So what is going to happen uh, with this or that treatment option I have with the patient? So 
In this context, we feel that causation is the number one problem. And this combined with the fact that uh, uh, Rani is uh, a, an expert in causation makes us, I would say, a very good team. <laughs> yeah, I think when we talk about, so when we talk about evidence, you know, that you should, you should use the best available evidence, what we say in the book is that, well, we want to know whether something works. And if it works, it means it has a causal power to do something, you know, to change something. So we are only interested, for instance, in medical history because we think it can affect your health. And affect is a causal term. And if we want to predict anything or explain anything, we will have to we will have to look at these connections because otherwise, what you explain if you don't explain how something happened or what led up to the situation today. So I think every time we ask how or why we are interested in causation. And I think it's a problem if, if we, for instance, pretend that all the data that we have, that they are not interpreted causally when we start applying them in real cases, because the only reason why we think when we see statistical data such as uh, uh, secondhand smoking uh, is correlated with the increased cancer rate or something. It's because we think there is an intrinsic, there is an intrinsic causal power of the smoking, so it actually does something. So I think this uh, this idea of uh, of not talking about causation as if it's not there, but then acting all the time yeah. in causal ways that's that's a problem. And it, it underlies the whole philosophy of medicine as it's as a modern enterprise. I mean, if you go back to like, why do we think a vaccine is going to fix everything for COVID, right? Because we think there's a causal relationship between vaccines and between immunity. And uh, so the way we think about medicine, pills, treatments, interventions, these we're looking for, you know, what Ehrlich would have called the magic bullet, the, the one cause and effect relationship that's going to solve the problem. When we test drugs, we're looking for causal relationships. What does it mean if a drug, if a clinical trial is successful? What is that? It's identified a causal relationship. It just it underlies the whole way medicine works now. So I think if we're going to change the ontology of medicine, that's the that's the starting point, I think, as well, because it's so dominant in the way of reasoning. Yeah. Thinking as a clinician, if I try to understand a patient and try to understand their story and, and try to get a kind of insight into their experience, I'm not consciously thinking about causation when I do that. I'm I'm trying to get to know them, but I suppose, I guess I guess you would say that the reason why I want to know them is that I can then better understand the causes of their current situation. But I, it's just interesting to me because I don't think about. I think how Elena described it. Yes, when I'm providing some intervention or some treatment, there's a much. I've got a more explicit, you know, thinking around. Well, this treatment will cause that effect. But if I'm just having a conversation about with the patient, trying to understand their life, I'm not thinking about causation, but it seems like it's kind of in there, sneaking its way in there somehow. Yeah, so Nancy Cartwright says there are so many causal verbs. So, for instance, if you say, uh, what influences their condition? You know, mm. that's causally yeah. affecting. Uh, yeah. What treats the condition? Well, that's yeah. actually causally contracting or preventing, you know, so... Or how, how did you come to, to develop this condition, for example? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it wouldn't be developed if there wasn't some, if it wasn't a yeah. causal process. So I think it, when you get to know people, it's not like you ask them, oh, your aunt 
you know, and your uncle, what are their names? Uh, do they have a dog? You know, you ask about things that you think influences their situation or could influence uh, their recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And what you notice about their narrative is always things that you're going, this is why one thing that changing the ontology is important in the epistemology is that people start to notice different things when patients describe their conditions. If you're only looking for a certain kind of cause, like a biomedical cause, you're only going to hear evidence in the form of biomedical evidence. You're only going to hear about their pains and their symptoms and specific things. If you're looking for a difference between a physiological and a psychological disorder, you're going to be picking up on evidence that distinguishes between those two possible causes. And so your your bias going in, what you think is going to be a good cause, that's what you're going to latch onto as well. So this is one way where changing the ontology does change practice, where people get different information from their patients because they're looking for different kinds of causes. You're always looking for some kind of cause. So what kind of cause are you looking for? Let's look at that. And then you can start mm. to look for different kinds of causes. So one thing that I think is now really problematic is the way that we think about risk factors, because they seem to be just statistically generated um, factors that seem to somehow influence on the population level. So I was, um, I got this test for checking my risk of uh, diabetes from a colleague, uh, and they had like five questions. It was my ethnicity, age and then my measures and my weight. Well, they had one more question. It was whether any of my parents had had uh, diabetes and then I got the score. So if as a clinician, <laughs> if you want to know whether I will develop diabetes, shouldn't you ask me about my lifestyle, you know, about my diet, uh, if I exercise, uh, you know, shouldn't you ask me things that you know in the complex situation would influence my you know, my risk of cancer in just asking about my measures. I mean, hmm. it, it just seems that uh, it just seems that a lot of the complexity of the individual gets lost when we only think about the things that are common risk factors. Yeah, yeah. And the minute you try to standardize some set of questions to identify risk factors, then you're going to lose on that. You're going to lose on that context and that individuality. And I, this thing about complexity, that the assumption is that that tell me about complexity because it comes up a lot this this phrase com complexity is different to being complicated right because everything is complicated this conversation is complicated i thought we could maybe introduce complexity because again you know just just questioning a term which has an everyday use right complexity how's it being utilized in relation to cause health because it because it if it, it, it's threaded through the whole book right because the assumption is that humans are complex and that and that's a position that you guys are taking you see, complexity is another of that words like causation or causality. It's a word that everyone uses all the time, but many people uh, mean different things with the word. The trouble is that we don't get to know that because we always use the same word without saying what we mean with that. And uh, when I got to work closer to the philosophers, I understood the... Um, how interesting and charming, charming it is to uh, starting to spell out, you know, what do we actually mean with these everyday words? 
uh, so one thing is like, what do you th- what do you mean about causation, and uh, you know, why do you look for uh, controlled trials to look at, at causations? Well, that's because you think that causation is something that makes a difference. That's why that's why you need uh, controlled trials. Uh, what, what what else could that mean if not something that makes a difference? And that's when it was so, uh, you know, I got a little bit in love with the philosophy of science through talking with Rani. Uh, and, and complexity is not, not secondary to that, I think, because when you think about uh, uh, something complex, often we think about something made of many parts that interact. Uh, in many different ways. It could be, for instance, the genome is very com- complex with this, because it's made of uh, a lot of genes that interact uh, in a different, uh, in a very uh, intricate pattern with each other. But there's another way to uh, understand complexity, which is uh, that you all know Lego bricks. So a child playing with Lego bricks can make, uh, you know, if he's very, very good, can make very uh, big uh, structures that could be considered complex because each Lego bricks can bind to all the others and make up something that, you know, is uh, difficult to build and difficult to reconstruct, etc. You wouldn't be able to remake it, you know, if you don't uh, use a lot of hours. But in that context, each Lego brick is always, will always be the same, you know, before and after, will not change its own uh, form or identity. But if you think about living things, living things are more like something that uh, by interacting to each other, they change their own identity. For instance, a beaver, a beaver changes its own surrounding. And at the same time, the surrounding change in the shapes, the development of the beaver, the species. So, I mean, in, the, in ecologic thinking, this term complexity is, is uh, understood as very different. So I think ecologists, when they think about a complex whole, they think about the whole made of parts that where the parts cannot be recognizable anymore. They're changing, mutually changing their own identity, which is very different. So I come, for instance, from molecular biology, uh, as a PhD, so I, I'm really not used to think when I when I think about complexity. So by my instinct is thinking about a lot of Lego bricks uh, because this is the way we work in in uh, in lab models. And I think that trouble comes, as I said, when we all say complex, meaning different things, and then we start uh, we try to have a constructive dialogue about it without spelling out what we mean by it. Yeah, and, and I think from a clinical point of view. I- You'd be hard pressed to find a clinician out there that wouldn't say, "Oh, yeah, yeah, my patients are really complex." I, you know, I, I totally subscribe to that view. A, a bit like you were saying, it's such a commonly used term, but you just wonder if there's a if there's a if there's a real appreciation for the for that complexity or or what they mean by complex is probably quite different to to how it's being used in the book and how others might consider it. Well, it makes things hard. Right? It's really hard to solve a complex problem, and it's even harder if emergence like. Uh, the secondary uh, definition that Elena was talking about, where, you know, the the whole isn't separable into parts, and, and it's you know, it, it one would resist <laughs> trying. It's much easier to think about Lego bricks because you can you can look at the Lego bricks, you can figure out how they might fit into different things, you can create theories about the Lego bricks, but uh, organic systems are much more difficult to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, so the Lego bricks, the Lego bricks is really useful because you can uh, take out one and see what happens. 
you know, oh, which causal role did that Lego brick ha- have in this? Whole, oh, shit, it was holding up the whole construction. Okay, we better put it back, you know. So, and, and this is how causal study works because it's about changing one thing and see what happens. But if things are truly complex, you cannot just remove one thing and everything else remains the same except that one thing. So this is, uh, this is the problem with the biopsychosocial model that people have been saying that they want instead of the biomedical model. Yeah. And, and so is it always complex? So you said causality is always complex. And so is that just a general rule, this kind of foundational rule that that's that's immovable? I mean, are there times when com- where causation isn't complex in, in relation to healthcare? Whereas if I've got appendicitis or I've got an aneurysm or I've got low back pain or fibromyalgia, is that they're not necessarily equally complex situations, but there is complexity shaping all of those things. You you can try to take away complexity by looking at only one causal factor. So think of um, you have a condition and you take a pill and it works. That would be great. But the pill only works because it interacts with you. So if you were not there and you put the pill on the table, it doesn't do anything. So it's the same, you can have a flammable batch, but if you, if you have no oxygen that it can, you know, uh, burn or it doesn't have uh, the wood and it doesn't have the flammable tip. I mean, it, it needs to have a lot of different things to, to work. So we, we tend to think of only the stimulus and we think that the stimulus is there alone because it's what makes the difference. So you strike the match and it lights and you think, oh, striking, that's not very complex. You know, it lights, but it is complex because you light on, you, you strike it under different conditions and you will get different results. So that's the same thing with, if, if we think of a treatment as something that works on its own, it's a very dangerous implication of that, which is that, oh, I don't even have to care about who I give it to because it's so effective. And what Elena is working on now is, uh, you know, side effects of drugs because different people with different properties interact in different ways. And that's the context sensitivity of causality that you're describing, I think, throughout the book. You wouldn't have the context sensitivity if you didn't have the complexity. It's because the context, there are so many elements that would influence the causal process that you have to think about all these tiny, tiny things so changing one might make a massive difference. So maybe we can start to think about, because the, the chapter one really introduces philosophy in the context of clinical practice, but maybe just go through the connection or the value of philosophy for clinical practice and maybe the connection between philosophy and clinical practice. So I mean, you, you guys talked about these physical biases. As a clinician, I'm just filled with bias. It's bursting out for me. And so philosophy gives me some tools to be able to reflect on on that and, and the kind of sorts of evidence I value and how I see patients? I'd say that uh, one of the values of philosophy for clinical practice would be to recognize what we have called uh, a philosophical bias. So we use this term philosophical bias to call something that others might call uh, um, basic assumptions. Basic assumptions about uh, how the world is and how you can get to know uh, the word, and not least about what is right to do, what is the good thing to do. Uh, 
So these are three parts, uh, if you want, uh, of philosophy. So bias about uh, how the world is are ontological biases. Uh, so, and we talked about, for instance, what do you think causation is? What do you think complexity is? And, and there are several uh, of these. Like, what is evidence, for instance? Then there are other biases about how, how to get, how do I get to know about the world? And which in clinical context would be, how do I get the best information about, about my patient uh, or about the illness? And that could be, do I get to know it by uh, looking at the studies in literature? Do I get to know by interviewing my patient? And here we don't want to be naive because we, I don't think there's anyone who thinks that, okay, it's only, I'll only get to know things through one in one method. So I'll, I'm only going to read clinical trials. I'm only going to talk with my patient. I mean, no one thinks like that, like that. but the trouble is when you get different pieces of information and they uh, they point to different directions. That's the problem. Uh, and this is what uh, very often happens. So when everyone points to the same direction, then uh, you don't need to maybe get in so much trouble and you don't get into thinking so much about these uh, problems. But very often uh, uh, you see something in your patient that, for instance, cannot be seen uh, at the statistical level or maybe the other way around. That's when you need to think, uh, well, what do I trust the most? Which piece of evidence do I trust the most? What is the best way to get to know about the world, which is an epistemological bias? So do I care more about something that is closer to the context? So, uh, or do I care more about uh, something I can rely a lot on that can be repeated? So it would be an experiment. And then there are biases about uh, what is the right thing to do, which is uh, which uh, confines more into ethics. What are the values that I put in my choice? And this is something that can never be, you know, that we look at this thing one by one is an artifact. We need to look at it one by one because we want to talk about it. But in reality, of course, everything is in the interconnected to each other. There is no choice about how to look at the world that is separated by another choice about the value. I put into it. And Samantha is our ethics uh, expert mm -hmm. of the group. <laughs> well, values have been such a focus on how to improve medicine. And uh, I'm not dissing them by any means, but I think the epistemology link to the values really needs to, it is being recognized more and more in philosophy and in medicine. And I think by clinicians, and this is, and I will bring in the second half of the book, because I think this is where the contributions in the second half are so nice, where it's a, you, it's not like you can question every decision you make while you're in practice. You know, we can't, you can't call into question every judgment you're making because there might be some kind of philosophical bias that you haven't gone into yet and figured out. And you don't know exactly what you mean when you say this thing causes that. And you can't explain that to your patients. It's just too much, right? But in the second half, we have so many good examples of people who've struggled with these questions and have found ways to apply it in their practice, to ask those difficult questions in ways that changes the way that they then apply their own medicine, the kinds of methods they're using in practice, the kinds of questions they're asking their own patients, 
many of them have managed to change their institutions in ways that allow them to do that, right? So they've they've pushed against that pressure to follow a certain model and and introduce a different model, a different way of doing it, and it's working. And it's it's really cool to see. It's not easy, you know. None of these people have taken on easy tasks, and all of our authors describe uh, kind of existential difficulties with dealing with the problem with their own practice. Many of them describe a kind of transformative experience, even where they've realized that they have an issue with the way things are going right now, and they need to find another way to understand it. And then once they do, they start to employ it actively. And so they're, they're, they show all these different ways to take these really hard questions about bias, um, that if it's just about asking the questions, then it's just really hard. But if you can put it into practice in some way, like there are, these are great examples of, of how they've managed to do that, which is, you know, it's inspiring. And uh, and it's really, it's cool to see it kind of go from the ground up in that way, because there's uh, there's a lot of a lot of discussion about EBM and uh, evidence-based medicine and how problematic it can be is very top-down discussion, right? How do we how do we knock the RCT off its golden throne? That's a big question that requires policy changes, institutional changes, scientific approach changes. Like just there's a lot, right? But within practice, there's still a way to ask these questions about the way that those biases affect the kinds of choices we can make, and then to slowly start to enact that change. Um, I don't want to put all the responsibility on individual clinicians' shoulders by any means, and that's that's one danger of talking about philosophical bias in practice because it really narrows down the scope of where that responsibility and activity should be taking place when it is an institutional problem. But it's, uh, you know, it, we've got to start somewhere and we're just starting with the people that we know and who we've seen do this work. And we just want to make sure that it gets out there so that other people can see how it can be done, right? So it's not just an existential crisis. You can come out the other side. <laughs> so it's also really interesting because the Cold South project started by uh, talking in general to, to the healthcare uh, community, but it was the clinicians who, who cared the most. I mean, we have all these one size does not fit all slogan and, and equals one. But, uh, but uh, the most downloaded chapter in the book is written by a patient representative, uh, Christina Price. And uh, it was interesting for us to see that she thought that this information that and this kind of understanding that comes from cause health cannot stop with the clinicians because she had Matlow as her um, uh, physiotherapist and he actually explained to her about, you know, he explained to her this philosophical framework uh, in practice that he developed, you know, and she said that changed that changed completely her understanding of her own condition and it empowered her to make uh, changes on how to deal better with, with the chronic pain because she doesn't have a chronic pain that can be cured. So she has to just think that she can live with it. But, but the way that she could now both think about it and influence it is something that she said she got from him. And I think that uh, that kind of widening <laughs> of perspective to see beyond uh, the clinic and actually home to people because I mean we're all in the healthcare system 
everyone has to go to the doctor at some point. We all have something or our family will have something. So to think that this is something that needs to be understood in general, we need to, it's a, it's a, it's a community uh, issue. Yeah, and I think that if we call it a movement, where that movement takes place, it's a, it's it's not as Samantha said, it's not just booting randomized controlled trials off the top of the hierarchy, but rather the the kind of troops on the ground, patients, clinicians, researchers, all kind of changing some of those assumptions. Then you would hope there would be some ripple effects that would kind of knock the RCT off the off the hierarchy, or there wouldn't be a hierarchy that we would have this kind of flat flat landscape of evidence. Maybe just on that point about the evidence-based medicine and practice and where that features in and around the book, because as you said, there is a kind of bias around methodology and methods that the assumptions around health, illness, uh, reductionism, biomedicalism inform the sorts of methods that have been prioritised by healthcare researchers, right? That there's a reason why randomised controls trials sit at the top and meta-analyses, for example, and all the other stuff, the qualitative work, expert judgment, opinion, that just sits right at the bottom. So maybe if you want to speak to that and maybe how the book tackles or challenges that kind of status. The way the book tackles this challenge of, uh, let's say, prioritise one type of, of evidence is, as we said, by thinking about what causation is. So the point of the book is exactly is and the, the new thing if you want of the book is that we make it all a question of ontology yeah, so there are a lot of uh, or at least two or three other um, research projects going on at the moment or very recently finished in philosophy of medicine who come to the same uh, let's say result or very similar results that we have so they also want to expand the notion of evidence in medicine they want to knock down the RCT from their status of golden standard, and they want to uh, pair it, for instance, with evidence of mechanism, etc. But I would say that what COSALT has diff- uh, the difference between COSALT and these uh, other projects is that that we do it by uh, bringing in the ontology, because the other projects they remain at the level of epistemology, and there are a lot of uh, arguments you can make, of course. Uh, but we think that we have something that makes it uh, deeper and and you could think that uh, people don't care about it because it's too philosophical but but the facts show that uh, that's not like that so actually uh, clinicians really uh, didn't we don't feel that they have any problem in uh, in recognizing this that they're saying so what we do in the book, we start from uh, setting up what causation is. We start from set, from explaining different ways of uh, understanding causation, and then we give our own preferred interpretation. And then building on that, we start tackling the question of uh, complexity, evidence, bio- biomolecular model or not, contextuality of causation, all all building from our interpretation of causation as dispositions. And then we had the idea of showing in the second part of the book how these 
reflects in clinical practice because one uh, problem that we might one might think that we have is okay i mean you talk about all these philo philosophical uh, concepts and you go down to the ontology but what does it matter for the clinical practice to go out uh, down in the ontology that's why we decided to have the second part of the book which in my opinion is the far the most powerful because it really shows how this matters <laughs> Just to touch on the hierarchies themselves, I mean, they were based on the, the model they're based on is the idea that there are methods that are better at reducing bias and error than others, and that, and mainly about bias. And the main concern there is getting the, the personal bias of the observer out of the science, right? So we have better science when we can have less human influence on the results. One thing that dispositionalism really calls into question is whether that's ever possible. <laughs> that it's, it's not just about the observer, it's about the inherent complexity of the system. And so there's the ontology gives us an epistemological problem that can't be solved by reducing bias. It can only be solved by looking at plural methods, plurality of methods, and by comparing them and by getting deeper into what we're seeing and by questioning more and becoming more involved in the science rather than less involved in the science. Uh, so in, you know, you can say, yeah, we want a plurality of methods because we want a plurality of evidence, but until you get to really uh, look at the role of the people involved and how the interactions between individuals and between factors within a context are all influential. Um, you can't get to the point where you accept the un inherent uncertainty in our conclusions about medicine. And, and this is something that uh, EBM tries to get out, right? By reduce bias, then we reduce uncertainty. Now we can be really sure, even if we don't have a causal relationship, those statistics mean we're sure about something. There's something that we're certain about because we've eliminated all the bias. And I think we're finding more and more every day that eliminating uncertainty is just a bad way to go. It doesn't get us anywhere helpful. Um, and so finding ways to, you know, start kind of tearing down that edifice of the quest for certainty within medicine, I think is a big part of making changes to the kinds of methodologies that are acceptable, the kind of research that gets funded, the kind of practice that people are allowed to do. Um, it's all connected in that, mm. in that sense. Completely, completely. And, you know, those ontological assumptions that clinicians make will will affect their clinical gaze, the sorts of judgments that they make, you know, where they put their attention to in, in relation to that clinical interaction. So, it, I mean, I, I was sold before I even opened the front cover. So, But to me, it's, it's painfully obvious that, you know, that those kind of foundational views about ontology, whether it's causation or practice, just inform how we interact and how we help people. I mean, it's, 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 you know, you've got to stand somewhere. So maybe from each of you, if you want to share what your hopes are for the book in terms of the sorts of purpose and impact that it might have for clinicians and academics and researchers. So I would really like to see clinicians having a stronger voice in setting the conditions, the premises for their own practice, because now I think that people are told how they should practice and very often that goes against how they themselves think that they should practice. So if they are going to look at, if they're going to give evidence-based or evidence-informed 
treatments and make decisions that are based on evidence. We really think that that evidence should be relevant for the clinic, and it should also be informed by what happened in the clinics instead of just what happens in clinical trials. I would like to see clinicians uh, uh, much more directly connected to research, medical research, but not in the sense that uh, they get medical research to tell them what to do only, but also that they influence uh, the directions of medical research through their medical practice. So they feed uh, medical research with hypotheses and with uh, evidence. I'd like to see it just more popularly accepted that clinicians do philosophy um, uh, by them because they they do it all the time in the judgments they make and just that, you know, not to be afraid to to look for uh, ways of understanding that Um, and also for those questions to to not be uh, cut off as uh, as not necessary. I mean, this goes in education. There's been a lot of good movements towards bringing humanities into medical education. Um, values are being highly recognized as important in patient care. Bioethics is now playing a key role in more and more actual institutions. And there's a new philosophy of medicine movement. So within philosophy, people are looking more and more at the ontological and epistemological questions that medicine and its practice raise. And and I just want to see all of that come together and then definitely for the clinicians to be included because it's, um, I'm not going to name any names, but sometimes it's hard to publish uh, philosophy papers in medical journals. And uh, <laughs> But this idea that this philosophy is not a part of medicine, I think, is, is just wrong. And I would just, I like to see those uh, that integration happening. And, and the way it's happening in the book is really cool. And I just hope that the people reading it think it's cool too. I mean, that's a great place to end. The book so nicely integrates healthcare with philosophy. I mean, that that it's kind of broken down some of those artificial separations and that clinicians are doing philosophy the minute they step into their clinic room. They're they're asking questions, they're thinking about their assumptions, they're making judgments, and it it beautifully uh, levels that, that full separation really nicely. As does your podcast. Thank you for being an active part of that. I'm going to say thank you to Eleanor and Rani and Samantha, and I'll speak to you individually and also perhaps in pairs in future episodes. But for now, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.